In February 1979, Mona Lisa Two Eagle was last seen leaving her home on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, only to be found two weeks later murdered. All these years later, her family is still seeking justice. This is the story of Mona Lisa Two Eagle. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. I was talking to Shiashi about this a few days ago, and Ash, I don't know if you found this while doing your research, but the Bureau of Indian Affairs, also known as the BIA for short, has created a Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Unit. Yeah, so that's news. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I actually know that because of my family member and law enforcement mentioned something too. But when I looked it up, they have completely revamped their website and they've listed cases that they're currently investigating, which includes one of our local cases, Jacqueline Davis. Oh, yeah. And that's like a really old case. And I think we've tried to look into it, you know, like find some information. There's just not a lot of information. I know everything I've heard, it's just from community members that remember it happening and the circumstances but yeah she's still missing and there's no answers and there's no news articles either and it's all just like hearsay and you know in small communities like hearsay can be helpful in some cases but in some cases it can kind of derail the whole thing because if it's not somewhat true then it would lead them down kind of this rabbit hole of finding out nothing yeah So the creation of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Unit was actually the result of the Biden-Harris administration directing the Department of Interior to partner with the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services to create a strategy to improve public safety and justice for Indigenous people. And that's a lot, but it was just taken from their website, kind of stating their initiatives and their purpose. Um, And we know that Secretary Deb Holland also played a major role in the current energy towards justice as she was the driving force behind the Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act, which are both focused on bringing justice and awareness to MMIP. That's awesome news because, again, being part of the podcast and trying to find resources, trying to find information on missing women, that's news to me. But it's awesome news because at least it steps forward to help these women find some kind of justice and these family members. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit more kind of about their cases on their website just briefly, but it is pretty awesome. I read a few different articles that I actually put in my notes. Shiashi, I don't know if you saw those, but I pulled a few different articles and one was actually, um, so when I was searching like the history and the current strategic initiatives, For this missing and murdered indigenous unit, I found a memorandum of agreement between the FBI and the BIA, which establishes the guidelines regarding the jurisdiction of the BIA and the FBI in certain investigative matters in Indian country. So that was really awesome to find because it seems like, you know, they're recognizing the jurisdictional issues and they're trying to put really clear guidelines in place about who's responsible for what. Um, It may not help necessarily when it comes down to like state, tribal, or federal, but it seems like the federal agencies are working together to make sure it's clear between the two who is responsible. And just in all of that, it it just establishes how messy the jurisdiction issues are because it's so, it's just a tangled web of who, whose job is it? Who takes over from here? Who's investigating it? And, you know, like we talked about before, it goes through so many hands. And I think that's part of the problem. 
Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, like I said, I don't know that this MOA will actually resolve all the issues, but at least they're acknowledging that it is an issue. How many names are on that database? Were you able to see? Yeah, um, I'll bring that up in just a second. So we have touched on the topic of jurisdictional issues so much during our podcast, and we have expressed just how confusing the jurisdiction in Indian country can be. There are so many factors that play into whether it's state, local, tribal, or federal authorities involved. It seems like it's a never-ending web that MIW cases get caught in. But I am hopeful that the changes being made are positive, and this could be the beginning of clear guidance on who is responsible for bringing justice in Indian country. Okay, so while I was knee-deep in the legal background of the BIA MMU, which is the Missing and Murdered Unit is what they're calling themselves, I was also searching for the database of their current cases. And while I'm happy to know there is a focused attention on some of these cases, I am disappointed that, according to their website, they are only actively investigating a little over 60 cases. 60? That's it? But, but, at least it's something, and at least it's moving in a positive manner, even if it's just 60. I mean, we've covered more than 60. Yeah, so. True. So it's really upsetting to me personally, because, you know, we have created our own database of just the cases that we have covered on the podcast, which includes a little over 60 names, and the majority of those cases are unsolved or are listed as undetermined. So we know that there are many, many more cases out there that families and victims are still awaiting justice. Um, if you look at the BIA MMU data, I don't know if you want to call it a database. It's kind of just like they're missing persons. I mean, I guess it is a database. It's five pages, um, but it's only covered maybe, I think I saw maybe like six of the cases we've covered. And we've covered even some pretty high profile cases. So that was kind of unsettling to me that, you know, even though there is attention out there for a lot of these cases, even the ones that we've covered, they're still not rising to the level of being an open case that is being actively investigated by the federal authorities. Yeah, it's like they just can't. They can't find closure fast enough, especially for families that have been waiting years and years for answers and and justice. So the story that I'm covering today, I actually found on the MMU page or the BIA page. And it is a case that happened in 1979 and it's still unsolved today. And it is one of their open cases. Wow. It's like 34. No. I'm pretty sure it's 44 years, but let me, let me math it real quick. Hold on. 44 sounds right. I was thinking, I don't know. 44 sounds right. 44 years is a long time. Yeah, it's definitely 44 years. It's a very long time for your loved one to be missing or murdered and you have no answers. And I mean, put it into perspective. Like I know personally, I, I mean, there are missing or murdered just women in my family, but to go 44 years without any answers, without anything? Like, how do you live life every single day not knowing what happened or where someone is, a family member? That's just traumatizing. And my heart goes out to all these families and their friends just having to deal with that. And and the thing about it is, is there's so many, so many. It's like, you can't even comprehend it. Well, what I think about, too, is like, you know, in some really unfortunate circumstances, people only live to be 44 years old. So, you know, she's been gone pretty much a whole lifetime for some people. And that's hard. Yeah. So tell us about her. So this story today is about Mona Lisa Two Eagle. And I love her name. It's a powerful name. So Mona Lisa was a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. 
and at the time of her death was only in her early 20s. What is terrible is that due to the limited information regarding her case, I couldn't even find what her actual age was. Everything just said that she was in her early 20s when she went missing. So that's sad. That's like one of the basic information you should know about a person. Well, and what's sad is like back then they didn't do obituaries. So, you know, you can't even find... What? Not that I could find. If they did, maybe it was just for people who were of high stature. I couldn't find an obituary on her at all. I found something in the Congress report of like MMIW cases, but it, it didn't give any more information than I had already found. And, you know, there have been cases and stories that I've researched and, and shared that I couldn't find obituaries either. And they're not even in from the 70s. They could be from the 80s and the 90s. And I think that's just it's kind of odd. Well, it's it's odd, but it makes you also wonder, too. You know, in 1979, that I mean, racism was still pretty prevalent then, if not really prevalent. Um, so, you know, it makes you wonder kind of what society thought about an indigenous woman dying then and how it can kind of prevail the same a little bit today. But yeah, I couldn't find any obituary. Wow. I did find a little bit of information on her, so I'll tell you what I did find. So the Rosebud Sioux tribe, or more properly known as the Sakonju Lakota Oyate, the Rosebud Sioux tribe has a very interesting history and consists of seven different tribes who were known as warriors, buffalo hunters, and expert horsemen. Today, the Rosebud Sioux Reservation covers around 900,000 acres of land in South Dakota and is home to around 34,000 enrolled members. That's a big tribe. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, we went to South Dakota when I went on my trip out west. We actually flew into South Dakota and drove through Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. So I did travel through a lot of these lands. And just like Montana, it's very, um, I wouldn't say desolate, but it's it's very spread out. So this 900,000 acres of land is, you know, that's a lot of land. But it's also probably like farmland. And, you know, houses aren't really kind of close together. So it's very much like I described Montana in a previous episode. Now, I will say this. I went to the Rosebud Sioux Reservation back in, I believe it was 2012. And from my experience, you know, just driving around the the land, um, you would see these little housing communities, but they would be so far spaced out from one another. And you would have to drive a good couple miles till you got to the next one. So there was a lot of empty space there, but... There was also these really, really beautiful rolling hills. It was kind of, it was interesting to see kind of the difference in, in the way the landscape was set out. It is a very beautiful area though. Um, you know, we have mountains here, but like you said, they're rolling hills. It's just like, it's so picturesque. So it makes it, it makes it so hard to believe that there's so much tragedy and so much violence in like the bones of this land. So Mona was one of 14 children and her family described her as kind, caring, and athletic. There's only one picture that I can find of her online, and in that photo, I feel like you can tell she has a caring smile and a kind demeanor. Like many of our other stories, Mona was a very beautiful girl and was a mother to two young children, two sons who are still missing her today. Mm. It's sad, and I, I hate that it feels like we're always repeating the same story. Like, I feel like I've said that line at least 10 times. Well, it makes you think about how many children are out there missing their moms and just having no answer to where their moms are. And like no hope, you know? I mean, it's been 44 years. Yeah, that's sad. In the winter of 1979, it was reported that one of Mona's younger siblings, Phil, 
who at the time was only 12 years old, watched her leave their sibling's house and get into a red truck with two men. Mona never returned. For two weeks, local law enforcement and the Two Eagle family searched for her on horseback and by foot. It was not like Mona to be gone for so long and not return home to her children. The family knew that something was amiss and knew they needed to find her. Not only was this South Dakota during the winter, but it was also reported that during the time she was missing, it was in the middle of a blizzard. Oh, no. So we, you know, we know from other stories that when weather, especially out west in these areas is a factor making this makes finding her much more critical absolutely especially if there's a blizzard i mean that's gonna you know complicate things 10 times worse yeah so for reference the average high during the south dakota winter can be an average of 32 degrees fahrenheit and an average low of below 10 degrees fahrenheit whoa yeah so that's on nor that's on normal occasions that's not even during a blizzard And for further reference, hypothermia sets in when the body temperature falls below 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which in a blizzard in potentially negative degree temperatures can happen in as little as 10 minutes. God, 10 minutes. Yeah. If you're not wearing proper clothing. Oh my gosh. Well, do y'all remember a while back? It's been, I think it was last year we went to the uh, sunrise ceremony in Cherokee yeah. for missing murdered Indian women. And it was cold that day. It, and it was just a typical cold day in the mountains, you know, Western North Carolina. And we were bundled up. We had jackets, gloves, toboggans, everything on. And we were still just like freezing. And we stood out there maybe, what, 30 minutes? It was about an hour. It, yeah. And it was just almost unbearable. I couldn't imagine having to so- tr- look for someone in that weather. Well, that was really powerful to me, too, is because, you know, we were there as like, you know, a remembrance sunrise ceremony. And we were thinking about MMIW cases. And it was really impactful for us to be so cold, like shivering, like we had gloves on, boots on. I remember Shiashi saying like her toes were numb, you know, and we were properly dressed. So I just I can't imagine. And it's probably colder or I'm sure that it is colder there than what we were experiencing. Yeah, I think it was like, what, 32 degrees? Like, Yeah, like it wasn't snowing. It was just yeah. cold. And the sun was out or it came out a little while later. But it, it's really hard to think about kind of what some of the people or the cases that we've covered and what they've endured. Definitely. So a little over two weeks after Mona was last seen getting into the truck with those two men, Mona's father and brother found her frozen stiff in the pasture near their home. What? Oh, yeah. my God. Near their home? Yeah. It didn't say how close, but it said it was pretty close to their home. So I I imagine maybe a mile or two. Because like Shiashi said, you know, there's pretty much nothing in between these homes or little communities. So there would be a lot of, there would be a lot of empty land for them to have to search. And I wonder, you know, during that two weeks that her family was looking for her, like, where would they know where to start? So it reminds me of the case that we covered about Henny Scott because, you know, she was found literally yards from the front door of the trailer she was last seen. And, you know, they claimed to have searched that area for weeks and never found her body. Mona Lisa's story is a little bit different. In 2018, Phil Two Eagle, which was her younger brother who um, last saw her leaving the home, did an interview with Teen Vogue on the MMIW epidemic, and he reported that an autopsy showed she had bruises around her neck and throughout her body, and it was possible that she had been raped. Oh, oh my God. 
Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll tell us, but they did suspect foul play, right? So during the time of her disappearance, rumors circulated around the town. One was that it was reported that a group of men were seen carrying her into a house. Another was that the vehicle seen or the vehicle she was last seen in was left parked on the side of the road near the field where she was found. Aside from this, no information regarding Mona's disappearance and murder were even were ever uncovered. And to this day, no one has been charged or convicted in her case. So it was a murder. They know it was a murder. But there is no one even in mind in this case, it sounds like. So they have no leads, like nothing? Nope. They looked for the red truck in town, possibly? Honestly, that is all the information that I have. Ah, that's so frustrating. Yep. So we don't know who the guys were, whose truck it was, where they went... How she was how she was found late in a field, how long she was there, nothing. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And it's so upsetting to think about how tragic and violent her death probably was, and that she could lay in a field and it's just written off as, Oh, we don't know what happened. So why bother reporting anything about it? That's dumb. Yeah. It- it's heartbreaking. I mean, and, and it's the reality. We say this so many times, but that could be us. It could be you. It could be me. It could be one of our friends, our sisters. And, oh, my heart just breaks for that family. That's so tragic. This is just so frustrating, just from the lack of reporting and how little we know about her case. It's like, it just kind of reiterates that when indigenous women go missing or are murdered, nobody cares. And I don't understand why. Well, and we know, too, that when cases aren't looked into immediately like this, like, say the people were outsiders and they weren't from here. Maybe they lived in North Carolina and drove to South Dakota. Like, unless you look into it immediately and try to find answers, like, you're not going to you're not going to get any. And if she was if, if yeah. they suspected that she was raped, I would hope that they did a rape kit if that was things that they did back then and took some DNA and at some point, they look back into it and they could possibly find someone, you know, through DNA. You know, it's hard to tell. I, it, I don't know. Um, I couldn't find, like, any reports other than, you know, the little information I did find. So it's really hard to tell how much attention and detail her case did get. Yeah, <laughs> especially in the late 70s. Well, it doesn't sound like she got much. Yeah, it doesn't. And what's sad is, you know, this case is similar to so many other stories that we've heard. And I'm not sure exactly what contributed to the injustice that surrounds her story. But there are multiple factors working against her, including the blizzard. So, you know, on top of all of all of the factors that play into MIW cases in general, she had the weather against her as well. And who's to say that, you know, they can't write it off and say, you know, what the blizzard washed away all the evidence or, you know, I mean, it's just another factor that works against her. I think what makes me so angry about these stories, though, is that we cover them, you know, we cover these stories from many, many years ago, and it is the same narrative that is happening today. The lack of concern, the victim blaming, the writing the cases off as situational and not contributing to these cases or not contributing these cases to predators that need to be stopped. I mean, you're right. Sometimes it feels like we are getting repetitive in telling these stories, but it's like, when is enough enough? Why aren't more people getting upset over this? 
Well, and it's always like, it. what kills me too is like, maybe she did willingly get in the truck with those two men. And I don't know if that, you know, played a factor into how much attention she got for when she didn't come home. But we know from other stories that that's what happens. If an indigenous woman willingly does something on her own accord, then they assume that, you know, not that she deserves it for say, but that she put herself in the wrong place at the wrong time and they don't give it as much attention as they would anyone else. It feels like, you know, and somebody did this to her. So theoretically there are two violent perpetrators that are still out there and they're probably still alive today. Think about that. Did you say that somebody's seen two men carrying her into a house? That was the rumors around town. So I could never find that it was like actual evidence or like a lead they were investigating, but that was like what people were saying around town at when she was missing. Well, I would have hoped that someone would have reported it. Wait, what house? Who were the men? Or what is the description if you didn't know them? Anything could have helped out. I hope so too. I mean, you would think people would do the right thing, but we saw this in Courtney Holden's case that we covered back, I think, in episode three. You know, a neighbor witnessed her being dragged back into the house and didn't say anything right away. They didn't report it at all. They on, That only came out when they were investigated, or not investigated. That only came out when they were being interrogated about her being missing because they were her neighbors. They were like, oh, yeah, by the way, this happened. Like, yeah, that's really concerning. It's just sad when people witness super concerning behavior and don't say anything. And you know what? I think that's even worse at times today because it's very much like, you know, you mind your own business. I'll mind mine. Yeah. And that's not always the best. And, you know, I it is hard to, I guess, understand the fine line between that. But if I see someone in danger, I'm going to at least call and say, hey, you know, can you look into this? Absolutely. Just be a tattletale. Just be a tattletale because <laughs> it might save somebody's life. It might help solve a murder. It might help someone out. Just be a tattletale. And if you have good intent behind it, you know, it's nothing malicious. If you're if you're calling out of concern, you know, then that's all it is. Yes, because what if that was you? What if it was you or someone you knew? Yeah, isn't that scary to think about? Like, I can't imagine how hopeless it, if, if that really happened or, you know, if a case where that truly happened, where someone was being dragged into a home, like how hopeless you would feel knowing that someone may hear you screaming for help or someone may see you and then you still don't have anyone show up. So we've talked about this often and in the Teen Vogue article that I referenced, I think that we've referenced that for another case too because it touched on quite a few MMIW cases. But Professor Sarah Deer, who is Muskogee Creek, who we have quoted before, said something in that article that was really profound. She said, When no one in authority looks for a missing woman, it sends a strong statement to families and communities that this life doesn't matter. It is an expendable life. This is the narrative that exists for many MMIW cases, and it is a narrative that Mona Lisa Two Eagles family fought in 1979, and it is sadly the same narrative that in many MMIW cases and victims must fight today. Mona Lisa Two Eagles' life matters, and her family deserves justice. Her surviving children deserve to have closure, even all these many years later. And I hope with this case being open today, that her family will one day find peace. If you have any information regarding the murder of Mona Lisa Two Eagle, please contact the BIA MMU at 
560-2065. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.